Uh, we're continuing our study, which is uh, sort of subtitled Alive to Love. We've been studying the book of Ephesians over the last uh, many weeks, and we've still got, we're only about halfway through, so we're still kind of trucking along. If you're joining us now, I would encourage you um, to go back and listen, not because it's me teaching. In fact, it's not all me. Jeff teaches some of it. But go back and listen to the earlier messages because this book, uh, it stacks up upon itself. So one of the things we talked about as we began was that uh, the author, Paul, is initially going to be laying out reasons for awe, awe in who God is, awe in what he's done in us, a recognition of where we've come from and where he's bringing us, that he's bringing us to become one new family, one new group of people. It doesn't matter where we came from or how, uh, how separated from God we were, that he brings us together uh, in the work of Christ. Now, after he's sort of established all this theological truth, he pivots in four and begins to give us Practical things. Uh, so the, all of that learning in the beginning now transitions to living, the practicalities of the way we live what we have learned or uh, the, the way we sort of become what we believe. There's a little bit of alliteration for you. That's just the least I can do. Um, so as we dive into the second half of chapter four, I want you to see that there's a contrast to what he said at the beginning of chapter four. At the beginning, if you were with us last week, remember he said uh, that, that we are created to be united, that we, we no longer want to walk uh, in our old way. We want to walk in this unity that God has created for us. If we look at four, chapter one, uh, chapter four, verse one, sorry, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. And he goes on to explain what that worthiness looks like. A worthiness of all that God has done for us involves both being united one to another, recognizing that he's created us with some diversity and embracing that, that each of us have different gifts and different talents, that he's created us broad so that we will uh, capture more of who God is, even in our unity, that he's revealed in us. So he calls us to unity, he reminds us of diversity, and he says that when the body's working together, it does what it's intended to do, it grows. The body, rooted in Christ, who is the head, grows when it's being the body, when it's exercising all these gifts, right? So last week he said, walk in worthiness, with, or in worthiness of the calling that you've been called. Now in the last section, he's going to give us the contrast, right? So he's going to show us the opposite side of that. Instead of walking a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the other option, and the thing he's steering us away from, he says here in verse 17, now thus I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says the, the other option, if you're not walking a life that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the other option is that you're still walking like a person who hasn't been transformed by Jesus. You're still living a life that from the external appearance of it is unregenerate, unredeemed, is still broken, is still hardened, is still darkened, is still uh, ignorant to the things of God. And as a result, when people look at you, they don't see this new man that God has called you to put on. They just see this old life that isn't actually indicative of the work that God has done in you. He says, if God has transformed you, you don't want to walk as if you haven't been transformed. That seems like common sense. And yet it's pretty easy for us to fall back into the old ways because they're comfortable, right? The old life is very comfortable. We lived that way for a long time. It's the way the rest of the culture lives. When I first moved to Hume Lake, I lived at Hume Lake, which is up in the mountains. I lived there for about nine years. And when I first moved there, uh, that was in 2000, uh, I moved there, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty decent elevation. They get snow in October or so, and then the snow kind of comes and sticks in December. And sometimes the snow will stay all the way until late May. We even get snow in June sometimes. But when I first moved there, my wife and I had a, a, a 1995 Honda Accord. 
And it was a really great car when you live in, in Phoenix, which is where we were living before, and it uh, got good gas mileage, and it was reliable. I loved that car. That 95 Honda Accord was a great vehicle, right? I highly recommend it. But when we drove up to Hume Lake, I'd gotten this full-time job, and we drove up to Hume Lake, and we pull in there, and we're unpacking our stuff. I remember having conversations with a couple of the people that had been living at Hume for a long time, and they said, uh, what, are you, what are you planning to drive? And I said, well, I'm, I mean, we've got this incredible 1995 Honda Accord in tan, you know, whatever. And the, the, the consensus, I had like three or four different people look at me and go like, yeah, that's just not gonna work. Like that car's just not gonna do it. And I'm like, it's a great car, reliable, gets good gas mileage. They're like, you don't understand the new life that you've just agreed to live, right? You're living in a place now where a Honda Accord will not even get you in the driveway of where the place where you're living, right? You won't even be able to get to your house. And uh, in fact, just to kind of reemphasize that, they issued me a staff vehicle. Like there's lots of staff vehicles at Hume. They're Ford Explorers and different things. The staff vehicle they issued me, a snowmobile. They issued me a snowmobile as a staff vehicle. They're like, this is how you're gonna get to work. And I was like, yeah, the Honda Accord has gotta go, right? It made tons of sense in my old life, but in my new life, we went and we bought a little Nissan Xterra. It, it worked great in the mountains, a four-wheel drive. I only went off the road like 12 times in the time that I lived there, so... Um, all that to say, we've all been through that deal where, you, where your life changes and it's easy to just sort of think, well, I'm going to maintain the way I used to do things. But this transformation, the transformation that's afforded us in the work of Christ, when we are in Christ, it revolutionizes everything. And there are things about our old way of life that are no longer, not only are they not, not healthy for us, they're absolutely unacceptable. Because as followers of Christ, as we'll see in the text, we've been called to reveal Jesus. We've been talking about that a lot over the last couple of weeks. That the way Jesus is put on display in our world today is through our peace, through our kindness, through our solidarity, right? And so when we put on this old life, when we continue to walk as if we have not been redeemed, we not only don't sort of tap into everything that God created us for, but we distort the image of Jesus that's meant to be put on display in us. So he says here, Instead of, uh, instead of walking a life worthy, he says there's a danger that you might walk in the futility of the minds like, like those who are unredeemed do. And he describes that for us. He says in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. He, he gives us sort of a description of what happens in the heart of someone who doesn't know Jesus. And ultimately at the root of it, this futility of the mind. And by the way, the word futility there in the, in the Greek Old Testament is the same word in Ecclesiastes that get, gets translated vanity. Vanity of vanities, like 30 times in Ecclesiastes it talks about vanity. The idea there is of something vaporous or of something intangible. This futility of thinking is, is a mindset that is uh, basically worthless. It's something you can't get your hands around. You can't grip it. He says the Gentiles were living in this futility of their thinking where, where everything they're after is, is something they can't actually get a hold of, which adds to frustration. And at the heart of that, he says, is a hardness of heart. So look at the way he writes it here. He talks about darkness in their understanding and being alienated from the life of God. But look at the because. It says it's due to their hardness of heart. There's a, there's a series here or a system that I want to kind of lay out. Before we knew Christ, the old way of living was a hardness of heart towards God. 
It was a hardness of heart. We, we maybe had heard about God or we maybe had understood God. You can read in Romans chapter one that the general things about God have been revealed to all men. And yet rather than worshiping as God or falling before him, right, what man has done is instead turned to their own devices. We've decided to worship ourselves or the things that we've made, it says in Romans one. There's a hardness of heart, a rejection of God. Now when we reject God who created us and organized the entire world, well, what follows is darkness, like, like an intellectual and a mental, a spiritual darkness because God is light. So because of a hardness of heart, there is a darkness which then obscures our view of why we exist, the purpose for our life, the purpose for creation, the purpose for relational interaction. All of the reasonings behind the world in which we live are obscured when your heart is hardened towards God. So there's a hardness of heart that leads to a darkness. That darkness then leads to an ignorance, he talks about in the text, and that ignorance or that darkness and ignorance is basically a lack of understanding about what the entire purpose of the creation is. And when there's a darkness that leads to an ignorance, because of a hardness of heart, the next logical thing that happens when, when you don't understand the nature of the world is that you become hungry for the wrong things. You're just trying to satisfy yourself, but in the futility of your mind, in the futility of your thinking, everything you try and do to find satisfaction, everything you try and do to find some sort of happiness or contentment, it slips through your fingers because there's a futility to it apart from God. So that darkness that comes from a hardness leads to ignorance. The ignorance leads to a hunger for all the wrong things. Look at the text again. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, verse 18, alienated from the life of God. That's the end result because of the ignorance that is in them. Verse 19, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When you start to become hungry for the wrong things because you're ignorant of the purpose of the world in which you live, because your eyes have been darkened because of a hardness of heart, you see the way this stacks up? All of a sudden you become hungry for the wrong things and as you start to consume the wrong things, then your life becomes polluted. Your life becomes polluted with sin and wickedness because you're trying to satisfy with your, your life with things that can't satisfy you. So there he talks there then finally about alienation from God. They're alienated from God because their lives are polluted and their lives are polluted because they were hungry for all the wrong things and they were hungry for all the wrong things because they were ignorant of what the right things were and they were ignorant of the right things because their eyes were darkened because initially their hearts were hardened to God. He says, you don't wanna live like that, right? There's no reason why you should live like that because your heart has been softened by God because this isn't what you've learned in Christ. This isn't what you heard from him. Now, the reality is that we live in a world where there is futility of thinking. We see that on display all the time. And this isn't written here so that we can look down at other people. Remember, one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians is the solidarity we have with other men and women in their brokenness. We recognize that there are people, even this morning, whose eyes are darkened in the futility of their thinking. Their eyes are darkened because of their hardness of heart toward God. And as a result, they don't understand what life is for, why they exist. They're hungry for all the wrong things, and as they try and satisfy those unnatural hungers, they become polluted and alienated from God who created them for relationship. The, the appeal to you this morning, if you feel like you're living in the futility of your thinking, is be reconciled to God. That might seem overly simple, but through the death and resurrection of Christ, in his shed blood on your behalf, he has come and extended to you by his grace a way to be reconciled to him, to have your heart softened to him so that your eyes are enlightened and you see the purpose for your life. You become hungry for the right things and then filled 
with his spirit, filled with his purpose, walking in Christ. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what he's describing here in the beginning. This is, he says, this is where you came from. This is where you came from, and this is where anybody who doesn't know Jesus still is. It's not so that we can feel a sense of condescension. I'll tell you, in the heart of a follower of Jesus, there is no room, no room for judgmentalism. There is absolutely no room for condescension. There is no room for self-centered pride that would look down at somebody else who's darkened in their understanding or futile in their thinking because apart from the work of Christ and nothing of our own, we would be in the very self-same place. Does that make sense? So I always wrap my arms around the fact that the only reason my eyes are not darkened is because of the work of God. And anybody whose eyes are darkened, I just hope they meet my Jesus, right? He says, "That's, that's who you were. Don't walk like this. This is who you were. He says, assuming, verse 19, well, 19 and 20, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, by the way, if you have an Ephesians journal this morning, whether you're at home or here, cross out, take your pen and cross out the word about in that verse. The word about in verse 21 is not in the original text, and in fact, it muddies up what's being said here. He's not saying you heard about Christ. It literally reads, you learned Christ and you heard Christ, that you heard his voice through his word and through the revelation of his body. Remember in the section we studied last week, he talked about the fact that God has given apostles and prophets and shepherds and teachers to mature us, right? Now he's just accentuating that same idea. He's saying, I, I, I know because you're in the local church that you have been shepherded and you have been taught. You've heard the words of the prophets. You've heard the apostles as revealed in the things that they've written and the things that they've spoken. But he doesn't say you've heard about Jesus. He says you've heard Jesus. Why? Because we are the body. We are the manifestation of Christ on the, on the planet. So in the local body, it is possible to hear the voice of Christ himself made manifest through us. He says, assuming that you learned, this is not what you learned in Christ, assuming that you've heard him and were taught in him, there's that idea again of being in Christ, we see pervasive in the whole book, that you heard him and learned, uh, learned in him, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He says, I'm assuming you, you're in Christ, you've heard Christ, and, and what you've heard is, verse 22 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says you're transformed when you hear Christ. Jesus himself echoes that in John 5.25. In John 5.25, Jesus says, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How are we transformed? From a hardened heart, a darkened understanding? We're transformed by hearing Christ. Hearing Christ. Jesus himself says, the dead will hear my voice and they will live. Now he says, if you've heard Christ, you should have heard that the time has come for you to put off the deeds of the old life and be renewed in your mind and to put on the new man, to put on the new life, right? So I want you to see, he's gonna give us some real practical things here, but I want you to see first that he's talking about the, the taking off of certain things, but not just the taking off of certain things, right? I think sometimes we sort of think about Christian life in terms of like, what do I have to stop doing? I'm not allowed to dance, I'm not allowed to smoke, I'm not allowed to cuss, I'm not allowed, whatever, and we just, we're looking for a long list of things not to do. I want you to understand that there are things described here that, that are not acceptable in the life of a follower of Jesus. It's real clear. 
But it isn't just a call to take things off, to be taking things off. The call is to be taking things off and replacing them with the right things. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a two-parter in each of these. Each one of the, the practical instructions he'll give us has a relational aspect, so none of it happens in a vacuum. It's not just like you be a better person when you're at home by yourself or think better thoughts. No, all of them are relational. So all of the practical things he's gonna give us have to do with our interactions with each other. All of them have a putting off and a putting on. He's gonna also give us a reason for each one. But I want you to see here that the putting off and the putting on, as we note in the text we're reading right now, happens in the renewing of our minds, right? He says, you know that your old life is corrupt. You need to put that off with its deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Being renewed in the spirit of your mind is the way in which to put on the new self. Well, what, what does that mean to be renewed in the spirit of your mind? Notice there that the spirit in that particular verse is lowercase. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the guiding principle of your mind. It's talking about the way you think. You have to be renewed in the way you think. Well, that's, that's not a new idea, right? Even in our study of Ephesians, Paul has said again and again, it's important that you're thinking the right things the right way. Think about what he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. He's saying, I want you to know the truth of who God is and what he has done for you. He says something similar in Ephesians 3.18, which we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. Ephesians 3.18 and 19, he says this. He prays that, that by the power of God's spirit, we will have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is he talking about? He's like, you need to, you need to know these things. He's talking about the renewal of the spirit of our mind. That we're not living in the futility of our old way of life, but we're reminded who God is. We're reminded what he's done. We're reminded where we come from and where he's brought us, that we are perpetually being reminded in the wisdom and discernment of God of who he is and who he's created us to be. When we are renewed regularly in the spirit of our mind by refreshing these ideas, remembering who God is, remembering his love, then we have the ability to put on the new way of life. Colossians chapter three, verse two so set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your minds on things that are above. He calls us to live a different kind of a life. He calls us to live a life of good works. Remember when we were in Ephesians chapter 2, it said that we were recreated. He says, remember you've been recreated. You are God's workmanship. I'll read it to you. Ephesians 2.10. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, we are his workmanship, or his poetry, his artwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's an important distinction here that, that we need to understand, that we don't do good deeds in order to earn God's favor. We don't do good deeds in order to earn salvation or to be redeemed. But in response to his redeeming work, we recognize that in part, that one of the reasons why he redeemed us is so that we would live a good life so that we would live a life that honors him rather than a life that's lost in the futility of our thinking. 
It's interesting. One of, the, one of my kids' favorite things to do is to send me old pictures of me from like when they were kids, right? And fortunately, none of you knew me then. I have some of these pictures. I didn't bring them today because I don't want you to see them. But there was a season in my life where I had these real awful big sideburns. I don't know what, why. I don't know why I had them, but they were really gross. And my kids like to send me pictures of those ugly sideburns. There was also a season in my life where I only wore really baggy jeans, like four sizes larger than me, and then I cut them off at the bottom and let them be frayed, right? I don't know. I don't know who told me that was smart. I don't know. It was never fashionable. Like I was doing a thing that no other adult male on the planet was doing, but it was like my thing, right? Um, there are seasons of my life where I was wearing, I used to wear these like transition lenses that never got fully clear, you know what I'm saying? They were always just kind of a little shady. And there, you guys, there are pictures of me that I just look like such a dork, right? I don't know how to describe, like I just look so stupid. And, and the kids will send me these pictures as a reminder of like, look at the way you used to be, and I hope, I hope that in like 20 years they're not gonna be sending me pictures of whatever this is, but maybe, maybe they will, right? And they'll be like, look at what a dork you were then too. In every season, we know that there is a need to pay attention to the way we walk, the way we live. He says, you were taught in Christ. You know Christ, you heard him. That you're no longer supposed to wear those things, right? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, this is important, to put on the new self, what? Created. I want you to understand that the putting on of the new self, that's, that, that's only something we can do because he has already made us a new self, right? What he's talking about here is the visible representation of, of the supernatural work of God. He says, put on your new self, which was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You and I, we don't create that. That's the work of Christ. He does that work. Remember Ephesians 2.10, which we just read. Created, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for us to do. We are created new in him, we're made new, that we would put on these good things. He says, you know better than to live this old life, to walk in these old ways, as if you are futile in your thinking. That's not who you are. You know Christ, you've heard his voice, you've been taught in him to put off those things that are deceitful and corrupted and instead to put on this new life that God created for you, to put it visibly on display. We talk about this a lot as a church, the idea that we are meant as a body to reveal Christ, that broadly we, we become a display case for the Holy Spirit, but individually I am putting Jesus on display. It's why revolutionary kindness and radiant peace and unblushing oddity and all of those things are so important because they reveal Christ in us. He says, put off the old and put on the new. Now he's gonna give us a couple of basic examples. He's just gonna give us a few of these. Um, in this particular section, we're gonna hear these throughout the rest of the book, but in this particular section, he's gonna give us four specific examples. Now remember, all of these are relational. None of them happen in a vacuum. They're all about the way we interact with each other. Each one has something to put off and something to put on, and he gives us a reason in each one as well. So let's continue on, and we'll look at these four specific examples. He says this in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He says, put away falsehood and speak the truth. Why? Because we're a family. What do you take off? Lying, deceit. And I will say, falsehood here is not just talking about telling lies. It's not just those moments where you say things that are untrue. Falsehood is any way in which you're representing something that is inaccurate or false. I, I think there's a great tendency for Christians to be hypocritic, right? Or to, to be hypocrites, 
To live one way and to say something else. What he's saying is live a life that's true. We talked last week about the idea of truthing in love. He says put away falsehood, put away deceit, put away the, the, the appearance of things. I wrote here, you know, this idea includes posturing and fakery and hypocrisy and facade. It also includes things like pride and greed. Pride is a lie, right? The moment that I go, you know what, I'm better or I'm more worthy or I deserve something more or I I can look down at somebody else, that's deceit. That's a lie. It isn't true. There is a humble solidarity of all mankind. We are broken and lost apart from Christ. So it's, it's the, the putting on of falsehoods. He says, set those aside and instead speak the truth to one another. Live an honest life. Literally, he talks here about putting away the lie, which may be a reference to Romans 1, where it talks about the fact that the people there, even though God had revealed himself, they believed the lie and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. That may be a reference here to idolatry. But the bigger idea here is just that we would put away what is false and that we would live a life of truth with one another. Why? Because we're a family, he says, right in 25. Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. We've already talked about what it means to be the body, that all of us are different. We all are built different ways, and it's in our diversity and unity that God is beautifully glorified. So why do we need the posturing? Why do we need the falsehood? Why do we need the fakery? We don't need it. In fact, the broader we are, the more beautiful our community becomes, This, our church, a local church, or the body of Christ universal has to be a place of trust and transparency and love. And it isn't possible to be a community of trust and transparency and love if you're rooted in falsehood, if we feel compelled to say things or do things that aren't true. So he says, take that off. Take off the falsehood and put on the truth because we're a family. That's number one. The second practical example he gives us in 26 is this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What's he saying here? Be angry and do not sin. Well, what he's suggesting is that there is a kind of anger, and I don't think any of us are surprised by this, there is a kind of anger that's sinful. Sin, by the way, is any thought or word or deed or attitude that falls short of the glory of God. Anytime we fail to glorify God in thoughts or words or deeds or attitudes, that's sin. It's a failure to do the thing we were built to do. So he says, be angry, but don't fail to glorify God. What he's suggesting is to put off sinful, cultivated anger, right? So when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, sometimes we've taken that so literally as to say, like, make sure you never go to bed angry. And maybe that's good advice for married couples or whatever, but it's not exactly what he was trying to say. What he's saying is that for most of us, we don't just get angry and learn the lesson we're trying to learn. We get angry and we stew and we grudge and we resent We foster and nurse and cultivate that anger and it becomes like a living thing in us. The reason he says don't let the sun go down on it is that when you're you're actively cultivating and growing anger towards other people, there is no way to do that apart from sin. There is no way to do that apart from sin. He says be angry but don't sin. Well, how how can you be angry and and not sin? How can you be angry and not sin? Well, you, you get angry about the same things God is angry about, right? You get angry about the same things God is angry about. What is God angry about? God is angry about injustice. God is angry about hatred. God is angry about sin. God is angry about the ways in which we are divided, right? You get angry about the same things. We, we talked about alignment a couple of weeks ago. It is possible to be angry for the right things. In fact, you cannot have, by the way, you cannot have unity, right? True peace doesn't happen where everybody's just ambivalent, 
right? I think sometimes we think, well, that's how unity has happened. We just don't pay attention to any things that make us angry, right? We don't, make us, we don't pay attention to any things that bother us. That's the only way to be united is just to turn a blind eye. No, no, it's not ambivalence. It's about being angry at the right things in the right way for the right amount of time in a way that glorifies God. That's how unity is built. It's not by, by becoming ignorant or ambivalent about, about the brokenness in our world or in our community or in our relationships. No, we can be absolutely angry about those things. We just can't stew in them. Why? He says because to cultivate them, to maintain or to nurse that anger, to build that grudge and keep it alive is to give our enemy, the devil, an opportunity to divide us. What's, what's this essentially mean? What it's saying in this case is that our grudges and our stewing, that cultivated anger, is satanic. Does that feel too strong to you? It felt a little strong to me when I wrote it, but that's what the text is saying. What the text is saying is that when we allow anger to divide us, when we allow our anger at other people to be something that separates us apart, and when we nurse and cultivate that anger, that's a satanic act. That is the devil dividing us. He says that this stewing or cultivating of anger is satanic and one of the clearest ways in which we're divided and the image of Christ in his body is obliterated. You, you go out and talk to people in our neighborhood here about why they don't go to church. Go and ask them why they don't, why they don't want to go to church. And by church, I mean be involved with Christians. I don't just mean come to a thing for 80 minutes on Sunday. You ask them why they don't want to be associated with the Christian church, and they'll tell you because there's all that backstabbing and fighting and division. And what are they talking about? They're talking about cultivated anger. They're talking about a grudge that we've nursed. There's all this fighting. They go, ah, that's all right. Jesus seems like a good dude, but I don't really like his people. Why? Because we've allowed Satan to take, take an edge here. So he says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't cultivate that. That's the second practical example. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. The third example we see in this text, look with me, if you will, at verse uh, 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right? I love this. He says, quit stealing. Right? And we think, oh, well, I would never. Like, I'm not going to take money out of somebody's purse. I'm not going to steal. But let me tell you, theft happens in a lot of ways. Theft is just taking anything that doesn't belong to you. Theft can be not paying people what they're worth if you're an employer. Theft can be not working for the time that you're paid if you're an employee, right? Theft can be stealing from other people the honor that they are due as they are created in the image of God. That is stealing, right? There's all kinds of theft. It doesn't mean that just, you know, pulling a wallet out of a back pocket absolves you. If you don't do that, you're fine. No, he's saying, don't steal. Don't be the kind of person who takes what doesn't belong to you, but instead, that's what you take off. What you put on is working hard with your own hands, labor, right? Working hard with your own hands. Why? What's the purpose there? The purpose of putting away the anger is so that the devil won't get a foothold among us. The purpose for putting away the falsehood is because we're a family. The purpose for putting away theft is that you can work hard, what? So that you can be generous, so that you can give. He says, work hard with your hands and labor so that you can give to whoever has need. Well, that's exactly what the body is meant to look like. That's what Acts 2 describes the early church as, a community of people who worked hard to give to those who were needy. He says, put off stealing, put on honest work in order to give. Not just working hard to hoard and to hoard to hold on to what we have, but working hard to be generous. The last simple example he gives here in, 20, in this chapter is in 29. The last one he says here is, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as a good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So he's talked about setting aside 
falsehood. He's talked about setting aside anger. He's talked about setting aside stealing or theft. Now he talks about setting aside destructive speech. And the word there that's used for corrupting talk is the idea of rotten fruit. He says, set aside the things that you would say with your speech that tear other people down or are corrupting. Set those things aside and instead use your words for upbuilding, for encouragement. Use your words to bless. I love what it says in, uh, in Proverbs 12, 18. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Let me, let me illustrate something here, help you understand the same, uh, the same faculties, the same devices that we use to assess somebody else and figure out how to tear them down, the same mental processes, the same speech process that we use to destroy other people with our words. And I don't just mean verbal words. I mean what you type on your Facebook page, what you post your social media, what you do on the phone, the way you interact with other people, right? That destructive speech, all of the same muscles you're using to destroy other people can be used... To build them up. It's the same muscle. It's assessing what's going on in them and then rather than ripping them further down, building them up from there, right? It's that same discernment. It's the same muscles of speech and communication. It's instead of being rotten fruit with your communication, be an architect, build up in the lives of other people, right? Why? The reason he says here in this verse that we should not tear down but rather build up is to become a vehicle for grace. That we become ambassadors of grace. That the grace of God goes on display in us when we use our speech and our ability to interact with other people for blessing, for encouragement, instead of tearing down. Four practical examples. He says, put off, put off uh, falsehood and put on truth. Put off uh, unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. Put off theft and instead put on work for the sake of generosity. Put off... Uh, put, put off unkindness or destructive speech and instead put on encouragement. And then he kind of gives us an overarching uh, guide here. He says this in the verse that follows. After he's talked about corrupting speech, he says in 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are sealed, by the way, see, we see this in Ephesians 1, we're sealed when we are first redeemed, and the day of redemption is when we are glorified. So it shows here the Holy Spirit's work at the beginning and the end of the process of our redemption. But he says, be careful, because if you're putting on the deeds of the old life, if you're wearing those torn off jeans where they're four times too baggy and you got the big sideburns and the transition lenses, you don't look like Jesus, and one of the consequences of putting on that old life is that you run the risk of grieving the Holy Spirit. A couple things I want you to note here. Number one, for those who would say the Holy Spirit is just some sort of a ghostly force that you know, spins around the world or whatever, the, the Holy Spirit is a person, a person of the Godhead, a full, absolute part of the Trinity. And one of the ways we know that is that it is not possible to grieve a disembodied force, Right? The Holy Spirit is a person, and it is possible. Think, just think about the weight of this. It is possible to make God sad, to make God sad, to bring sorrow to God. You know how that happens? When we use our speech to tear each other up, when we cultivate and nurse a grudge towards one another, when we take things from people that they deserve and we use them for ourselves, when we lie and posture and live a life of fakery, there are other examples, but he says in all of these things, we take off the old and we put on the new. There are great reasons to do so, but primary among them is God is pleased. When we live a life of unity, 
It gives us the opportunity to please God. He talked at the beginning of Ephesians chapter four about the fact that we should be walking to maintain, right? To maintain the unity of the spirit. It follows that if the goal of the spirit is to unite us, that there are no outsiders, then what is it that breaks the heart of the Holy Spirit who's working to unite us? What breaks the heart of the Holy Spirit is when we are divided, when we are selfish. He says, so don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed and redeemed. He, lastly, he gives us just kind of a big overview. The first one is about malice, which is plotting evil for others. Malice is plotting evil for others. He gives us a couple of ways in which that happens. He says in 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The idea of malice is kind of the overarching view here. The plotting of evil for other people. That doesn't it doesn't seem like the kind, if I were to say, how many of you have malice towards others? No, nobody raise their hand. But you know how often we spend our time plotting evil for others? Bitterness, he says. Wrath and anger and clamor, which is just uh, sort of making a loud fuss. Slander, tearing other people down. He says, let all these things be put away from you. These aren't indicative of who Jesus is. He says, Resentment and rage, sullen hostility, quarrel and slander are not characteristic of Jesus. They distort his revelation in us. Instead, he says, verse 32, rather be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Kids, if you're at home today and you've got the, the coloring sheet, or maybe you're in here and you've got the coloring sheet, uh, that, that's exactly what it says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, which means compassionate, forgiving one another, well, you know what happens when you start to do those things? When you start to be kind and compassionate and forgiving? You know what you start to look like? You start to look like Jesus. You know that when you're bitter and angry and wrathful and clamorous and quarrelsome and grudgy, you know who you look like? Not Jesus, right? So if our lives are meant to be a revelation of Christ, he says it's really simple. Take off the things that don't look like Jesus and put on the things that do look like Jesus. He says... Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I wonder if there are some of us at Fullerton Free who've been wearing our old clothes. I wonder if, they, you know, I, they're comfortable. We live in a culture that loves those old clothes, don't we? We live in a culture that values greed and pride and dishonesty and clamor. We live in a culture that values those things and we see that stuff emphasized all the time. You know what happens if we start to take those things off and we start to live with kindness and compassion and forgiveness and grace? If we start to speak the truth and we start to be generous, you know what happens if we start to do this? We're gonna look weird, right? We're gonna start wearing the fashions of tomorrow, right? We're not wearing the fashions of today. We're not wearing the fashions of yesterday. But what he's suggesting we put on is, is that the church the body of Christ starts wearing the clothes of the future, that we become an embassy of the future where people can look at us and go, man, they dress weird over there. They're nice and kind and forgiving and compassionate. But in that unblushing oddity, there is an unforced appeal that people go, I, I, don't, know, I don't know why they dress like that. I don't know why they act like that. But I want, I want that life. You think that if, if, if the body of Christ were to start living with kindness and compassion and forgiveness and grace, if we were to start, start to put Jesus on display, you, you think that wouldn't be appealing to the world that is absolutely absorbed in injustice and hatred and envy and deception and greed and pride and division? 
I'll tell you the way in which for us to make a radical difference in the world in which we live is to take off the old life and put on the new one so that Christ is revealed in us. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a a newness in the spirit of our mind, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our mind to understand who you are and what you've done, where we've come from and where you're taking us so that, God, we would put on you, that we would put you on, that we would reveal you in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. God, help us, empower us to get rid of these deeds of darkness, to no longer live in the futility of our thinking, but instead, God, to recognize that you have created us for good works, which you prepared in advance for us to do. God, help us to actively take off the old, to actively put on the new, to be renewed in our minds in order to do that. God, by your power, we need your help. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.